Hello, this is the first Davis Vanguard podcast. My name is David Greenwald. We will be covering national criminal justice issues on this show as we continue on. We start this week in San Francisco, where in June, the Vanguard launched its first new court watch program, monitoring and reporting court cases in the San Francisco courts. You can read our articles at sfcourtwatch.org. San Francisco's DA, George Gascone, has announced he will not seek re-election. That has opened the door for at least four candidates to run for the seat that will be up for election in November 2019. Among them is 38-year-old Chessa Bodine, a public defender who is hoping to follow in the footsteps of, among others, Larry Krasner and Tiffany Caban, and will become, or is seeking to become, a progressive prosecutor. However, it will not be an easy journey, and as we will talk about shortly, he faces stacked odds as the establishment is heavily backing one of his opponents. So we have Chase of Bodine here. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, David. Great to be on. So, in your mind, what is wrong with the criminal justice system? <laughs> That's a difficult uh, question to answer in any kind of a short way. I mean, so much is wrong with it. Um, I could give you probably more than a dozen examples, but I think at core what they boil down to is a system of mass incarceration rife with racial disparities and with fundamental flaws that undermine the integrity of the system and really make it difficult in in many cases to refer to it as a criminal justice with emphasis on the justice system. Uh, It's led many commentators to refer to it as a criminal legal system instead. And so I think the challenge for those of us who participate in it, who observe it, who are commentators on it, is to make sure that we can uh, have faith in the outcomes and the process that result in such serious consequences for both victims and people accused of, of causing harm in their communities. So can you describe your experience as a public defender? Sure. So I've served as a San Francisco public defender pretty much nonstop since law school, with the exception of a couple years that I spent clerking for federal judges. And uh, during that time, I've I've tried more than two dozen cases to verdict. I've handled more than 300 felony cases, uh, pretty much the full range of of categories of cases. And I've also done a wide range of uh, impact litigation and policy work on top of the day-to-day individual case management that is the bread and butter of of a public defender. Uh, So I've helped initiate a immigration defense unit at the San Francisco Public Defender. I, for five years, have led a wide range of impact litigation uh, and policy and legislative work on bail reform, and I launched our early representation unit um, that provides representation to indigent arrestees during the critical period between their arrest and their first court appearance. What would you say is your biggest regret as a public defender? My biggest regret is the, the inability as a public defender handling one case at a time for individual clients to do more to affect systemic change. You know, you, you can you can only work within the confines of the individual case you're assigned and of the specific needs of the individual defendant who you're serving. And often um, those cases highlight 
the need for systemic change. I'll tell you, you know, one story by way of example. I, I had a client, a young black man, accused of stealing a car, and he was actually on probation for having stolen a car previously. And when I read the police report, it seemed like a pretty solid case against him. He was found in the car uh, that was stolen. He was identified by the owner of the car as having been the person that did it. Um, and when I spoke with my client, he begged me to get him a deal that would allow him to plead guilty and go home. And, and I explained to him I didn't think there would be a credit for time served offer in his case uh, because he was already on probation for the same conduct. And he said that he was willing to plead guilty to a strike if it meant he could go home to his family right away. Now, he wasn't charged with a strike. He was charged with a simple felony auto theft. Um, and what my client didn't tell me, but my investigator discovered, thankfully, was that there was video footage of the car being stolen. And the video showed a woman stealing the car, not my client, totally different person. Um, and cases like that, I mean, in, in the end, we were able to get his case dismissed and, and, and it worked out all right for him in that moment. But cases like that emphasize for me the, the ways in which our system teaches people, especially poor people, people of color, that the way you get out of jail is by pleading guilty to a serious charge, whether you committed the crime or not. It, it shows that people don't have faith in the process, even if they're totally innocent of the crime they're accused of. And um, my biggest regret is not being able to do more to restore that faith, that individual people, whether they're accused of crimes, whether they're victims of crime, whether they're jurors hearing evidence in a criminal courtroom, um, have in, in the system, and, and that the, the system is actually doing justice. So, you know, one of the problems that I always hear is that public defenders themselves kind of get a short shrift in, in the sense that most people think that if you get a public defender, you're, you're, you're kind of uh, out of luck. Um, but that's not necessarily the case from your experience. No, and I, you know, I, I've, I've had stories like that. I remember when I was handling misdemeanors and uh, I, was, I had a client accused of drunk driving and I was going over the possible consequences for her as, as I'm required to do. And, and um, as she listened to the range of possible sanctions, she said, this sounds really serious. Maybe I should hire a real lawyer. And, you know, of course, that, that felt like a, a bit of a slight uh, at the time. And I was thinking to myself that, that uh, you know, I feel, feel pretty confident in the quality of my legal work. And I've been well-trained, went to a good law school, all that. Um, but you're right that many people think of public defenders as worse than private lawyers. They call them public pretenders. Um, and there's a certain stigma associated with having a public defender. And that comes from the fact that in this country, and even in California, we systematically underfund public defenders' offices. We have uh, most public defenders carry crushing caseloads that make it impossible to provide a zealous defense for each and every one of those clients. And in some counties in the Central Valley, for example, uh, each public defender will carry in the neighborhood of 400 active misdemeanor cases um, or 150 active felony cases. And if they don't have resources to hire uh, or to work with investigators, paralegals, expert witnesses, um, then there's really no way for them to do a good job, uh, no matter what their intentions and, and individual skill levels are. That's not true at every public defender's office. In San Francisco, where I've been 
uh, proud to work for most of my legal career is an exception. It's one of the best public defenders in the country, and the quality of representation that you receive if you're appointed a San Francisco public defender is better than most lawyers you could possibly hire. And, and that's been my experience just uh, watching in the last month, month and a half uh, in San Francisco, although I come from Yolo County and I think uh, the attorneys there are quite good as well. Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's, it, it is a stereotype that often is, is not borne out by facts on the ground. And one of the reasons is that people who choose to become public defenders are not doing it for the money, they're not doing it for the glory. It's a difficult job. Uh, and so and it's a thankless job in many ways. And so the people who do it, do it because they're passionate about the work, about their clients, about the principles uh, that the Bill of Rights uh, stands for. And, and they want to make sure that they're empowering their clients to exercise their constitutional rights. Uh, and so you do often get people who go above and beyond um, in a way that you may not always find with the private defense bar. So then why go from public defender to prosecutor? Well, because of exactly that frustration that, that I described a moment ago, David. You know, the, the, the great thing about being a public defender is, you know, you can do your best for one individual person, one case at a time. And you can make a huge difference to those individual lives that you touch. But it's very difficult to affect systemic change in a system that desperately needs um, a, a, a radical uh, reimagining. And so uh, this is a unique moment in San Francisco. It's a unique moment in the country. Uh, it's the first time in, in really modern American history where there's a broad-based consensus, regardless of, of party affiliation or political orientation, that we need to redefine the role of the prosecutor. We need to rethink the relationship between law enforcement and uh, the community. And we need to reimagine how we uh, approach public safety. That's true across the country. It's manifesting both in federal legislation, bipartisan, and also in local elections uh, from places as far flung as Boston, Philadelphia, Chicago, San Antonio, and beyond, where we see uh, people being elected to district attorney uh, who come from defense backgrounds, who come from uh, really non-traditional backgrounds, and who are running on platforms to um, drastically change the approach to uh, enforcement of the laws in their jurisdiction. Meanwhile, in San Francisco, it's the first time in over a century where there's no incumbent running to retain their seat as district attorney. It's a moment when um, the city and the country are ready for change. And I think that uh, it's an opportunity for me to do far more to achieve that kind of systemic reform uh, that's been evasive in my career as a public defender. So you just said this is the first time in over a century that there hasn't been an incumbent? That's right. 1909 was the last time San Francisco's district attorney uh, race did not have an incumbent on the ballot. I mean, that seems like an odd uh, circumstance that, uh, so you've had a series of people that lasted a long time that ended up either dying or resigning or, or moving on to another position midterm and then an appointment. That's right. So you have a couple scenarios. I mean, one is some incumbents lose at the ballot. I mean, they may, they may run, but they may lose. Kamala Harris, for example, uh, ousted an incumbent who was on the ballot against her. And then she retired midterm to, to move on to become attorney general. And therefore, the governor appointed her replacement, who then ran as an incumbent in the next election. 
Wow. So, so this is uh, this is an unusual yeah. circumstance where you have a truly open seat. That's right, and and even more unusual than that, none of the four candidates in the race have ever run for office before, and none of us currently work in the district attorney's office at all. I'm the only candidate uh, on the ballot who actually works in the Hall of Justice today, and I've spent more time in the courtrooms of San Francisco criminal courts over the last seven years than all of the other candidates combined. So let's get into that. Um, So why is it then uh, that one of your opponents has the backing of seemingly all of the establishment? I think it's traditional machine party politics. You know, um, the candidate you're referring to is Susie Loftus, and she worked in the district attorney's office uh, back in the mid-2000s under Kamala Harris, and um, she built powerful political relationships during that time. And so what you see is not so much a... Uh, endorsement of the particular policies or vision for the office, but rather uh, loyalty out of you know personal relationships. I see. And, and so, what what is Susie Loftus doing today? She's currently sheriff's legal counsel. Um, she works as one of two lawyers in the sheriff's department, um, which you know is, is a department that's mired in pretty much constant controversy right now. We had. Uh, most recently, a, a criminal case the district attorney's office filed against sheriff's deputies who were accused of organizing fights between inmates uh, and betting on those fights, so, the so-called fight club case. And in that, that case was recently dismissed by the district attorney's office because critical evidence against those sheriff's deputies um, was destroyed by the sheriff's department with a hammer quite literally a, a hard drive that contained uh, interviews, video footage, surveillance, and other documents uh, was apparently destroyed by a hammer. And, and the sheriff's department um, reported that the reason it was destroyed was because they believed they had a virus. With a hammer. With a hammer. Yeah, that's according to the court documents that resulted in the dismissal of that case. And since then, there have been a whole series of incidents where sheriff's deputies uh, have been accused of beating inmates while they're uh, outnumbered and often shackled. Um, And there's been absolutely no accountability from within the sheriff's department. And worse still, the sheriff herself uh, just announced that she doesn't believe her department is equipped to investigate and hold uh, those deputies who are engaging in this misconduct accountable. And so she's asked to have an outside uh, civilian agency handle the investigation, um, which, you know, would would be a, an acceptable procedure if it were not midstream. You know, if it were uh, from the beginning, if it were established, if there were clear rules and procedures. But the sheriff waited about six months after the allegations came to light to throw up her hands and say, we need outside oversight, we're not capable. Uh, I, I don't think it bodes well for um, Susie Loftus's ability to run San Francisco's entire criminal investigation law enforcement agency. And and this comes after the previous sheriff effectively resigned, right? This is uh, the current sheriff, uh, Sheriff Vicki Hennessy, under her administration. She has announced that she's not running for re-election. I see, but the previous sheriff also had problems, correct? That's right. Uh, Ross Mir Karimi, he lost his re-election bid to Vicki Hennessy. Uh, after he was accused of uh, domestic violence, uh, a misdemeanor domestic violence case, which uh, resulted in a guilty plea. Okay, so um, 
Let me back up a, a step here. So uh, going back uh, to kind of the progressive movement, uh, let, let's talk a little bit about the victory by Tiffany Caban and what that means uh, for you. Well, so uh, for those who haven't been following, Tiffany Caban is a 31-year-old queer Latina public defender in Queens who was running for district attorney in Queens, uh, received the endorsement of Senator Bernie Sanders, Senator Elizabeth Warren, um, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the New York Times editorial board, among others, and was running a really grassroots campaign on a platform very similar to mine. Um, and her primary um, was June 25th, and it appeared that she had won by about a thousand votes over a candidate who had the backing of, of most of the New York state political establishment, including Governor Cuomo. Um, there's been a recount um, and there's been a count of mail-in ballots. A couple thousand uh, ballots were disqualified and now it appears that Tiffany Caban is no longer in the lead. Uh, obviously, it's gonna take a number of weeks to play out. I believe that litigation is ongoing about which ballots will be counted. Um, and uh, I'm optimistic that when all the votes are counted, that Tiffany Caban will emerge, um, as it appeared on election night, as the winner. Uh, I think it's an important um, an important victory for this movement because of, of what it represents. You know, the, the ability of a young, uh, idealistic visionary uh, without the backing of the uh, political establishment to run a grassroots campaign in a very short period of time uh, without all the money, without all the big name endorsements. The endorsements I just mentioned all came within the last week uh, or 10 days of her campaign. Um, and to, to build a movement that is calling for uh, urgently needed and transformative changes in how we approach criminal justice. Um, the fact that people from Queens to San Francisco, coast to coast, are demanding those kinds of changes uh, gives me great hope for, for my own campaign and for the movement that we're building, um, which will surely last far longer than any one political candidate's career. What's interesting is uh, I'm in Yolo County, and so last year we had a similar situation where a public defender uh, at the last minute decided uh, to challenge a three-term incumbent, didn't receive any money, didn't get any backing really from any of the political establishment other than in the city of Davis itself, and he ends up coming within about 2% of uh, unseating uh, what seemed to be a safe incumbent. So it seems like uh, a national movement that the establishment really hasn't caught up with. That's right, David. And you know, what we're seeing is that, uh, as I said, from coast to coast, that people are not satisfied with how the criminal justice system is working. People are frustrated with the ways that money bail undermines the promise of equal justice under law. People are sick and tired of treating mental illness and drug addiction with solitary confinement. And people are demanding that we invest in education rather than in incarceration. And the status quo establishment candidates um, are people who built their careers on this broken system. They built their careers by being part of this problem of mass incarceration. And so voters don't trust them to deliver the changes 
that are so urgently needed. And we see a lot of these candidates, uh, in my race, for example, all of the candidates are saying that they believe in progressive reforms, that they want to end mass incarceration. But voters simply don't believe that because of the way they've spent their careers. Voters look to the track record. They look to the, uh, you know, the, the, the career that people have had. And they see people who've been part of the problem, and they don't trust that they can be part of the solution. So the current district attorney, George Guscone, says the right things uh, in terms of supporting progressive reforms. He, he supported uh, Prop 47. He may have been the only DA in the state to do that. And yet, from what I've seen, uh, the system in San Francisco is just as bad as anywhere else in California. What's going on there? I think there's a big disconnect between the front office in San Francisco and between the day-to-day practice in the courtroom. And I think George Gascon has been a visionary in many ways in terms of some of the specific policies he supported, in terms of the role he's played uh, in inspiring uh, other candidates across the country to run for district attorney who are part of this progressive prosecutor movement. But often there's been an inability or unwillingness to meaningfully implement those policies um, in the trenches here in San Francisco. And part of that is is simply that uh, George Gascon has never actually practiced law. Um, you know, his background was as a police chief, um, and he came to the job as district attorney as, as an appointment uh, when Kamala Harris uh, became attorney general. Um, I know George. I, I think highly of him. Uh, but I, I have been frustrated with the pace of implementation of a lot of the policies that he's a strong and courageous advocate for uh, in terms of his role in the front office of the district attorney's office. And I think a lot of that has to do with middle management uh, in the DA's office, uh, being unwilling to really give effect to the policies that, that I know George believes in and is fighting for at the national level. And then as an outsider looking into San Francisco, you know, I see a progressive uh, community um, and and yet we see the problems in the sheriff's department. We haven't really talked about the problems with the police, with officer-involved shootings, with the lack of transparency in terms of police records, um, and of course problems in the DA's office. What's wrong with San Francisco? Why why are they not meeting up with the standards, maybe, of their voters? Well, the, you know, the law enforcement in San Francisco is very conservative, and, and law enforcement agencies, the, the Sheriff's Deputies Association, the Police Officers Association, have really been captured by the most extreme conservative groups. And many of them don't actually live in San Francisco. Uh, the, the folks who work in law enforcement in San Francisco mostly commute in from other counties. Um, And so there is a disconnect politically between those groups, uh, the associations that represent them, and uh, the voters. Um, uh, I think we have real serious needed problems of racism uh, and of impunity within the San Francisco Police Department. We're concerned about dishonesty in police reports or testimony in court. We're not just talking about stealing from people. Um, We're not just talking about racism. We're talking about actual uh, killings, and there have been a large number of them that have gone unpunished, of all those categories of misconduct that have gone unpunished for years, so much so that when the Department of Justice completed an investigation into San Francisco's police department, they published a scathing report recommending um, well over 100 critical 
emergency reforms that needed to be implemented in order to restore any semblance of integrity to the work the police department does. So how do things change under a Chesa Bodine uh, district attorney tenure? Which, how far back do you want me to go, David? Sorry. Um, just, uh, just with the answer on... Uh, on uh, how things change under your administration. Oh, got got it. Well, David, when I'm district attorney, we're going to enforce the law equally without regard to race, uh, the amount of money in someone's bank account, or uh, what their job title is. And that means that law enforcement officers, just like everybody else, are going to be required to follow the law, not just to enforce it. Uh, if a police officer or a sheriff's deputy files a, a perjured police report, there are going to be consequences. Um, and you know, I think that's a pretty significant change when, when you look at how uh, previous district attorneys, not just in San Francisco, but across the country, have allowed a culture of impunity to be a cancer at the, at the heart of the criminal justice system. Um, and the other thing that's going to be a critical change is within the district attorney's office, we're not going to measure success or failure based on conviction rates or length of sentence. We're going to measure success in a way that's much more directly connected to public safety, which is my priority. We're going to measure success based on two core uh, functions. First, recidivism rates. And second, victim engagement and satisfaction with the process. Um, so... How do we overcome, uh, on the one hand, uh, income disparity, and on the other hand, racial disparity in the criminal justice system? Well, one way we overcome uh, both of those disparities is through a strong, independent, and well-funded public defender's office. And, and, and luckily, San Francisco is already doing really well uh, in that category. I think a strong, independent public defender is a critical cornerstone of any healthy uh, criminal justice system, and we do have that in place in San Francisco. I'm committed to continuing to advocate for salary parity um, between the district attorney's office and the public defender's office in San Francisco. But even with that, there, there's the stat that, um, and I won't get the exact numbers right, but some somewhere around 4% of the population is African-American in San Francisco, and nearly half of the people in jail are African-American. How do you deal with that? That's right. That's exactly right. Well, I think there's a couple ways you deal with it. One is you make it very clear as a matter of policy, uh, which I will do, that under no circumstances will we file criminal charges in a case that's marred by racial bias in the investigation or uh, racial animus in the arrest or charging by the police. Um, the second thing you do is you require all staff members to engage in regular implicit bias trainings. The third thing you do is you uh, create a dashboard where you publish in real time um, data about arrests booking decisions, rebooking decisions, literally every stage of the process right up through recidivism rates, and you break it down uh, by, by race of the person accused. And that allows you to track the improvement you're making in reducing these racial disparities, and it also allows to uh, help identify the points in the process where you have the, the greatest um, disparity in terms of racial outcomes. We know uh, from some preliminary research that the Quattrone Center at the University of Pennsylvania did that right now in San Francisco, the point where racial disparities are most uh, uh, intensely uh, exhibited is in the 
policing stage, who to arrest and what charges the police book those individuals into jail on. And so it's essential that the district attorney's office play a role in leveling the playing field in the face of those racial disparities and work with the police department on retraining officers so that we don't perpetuate the racial biases uh, that you just set forth. So what's the first thing you would do as district attorney? The first thing I would do is prohibit anyone on uh, my staff from putting a price tag on freedom. We're going to end money bail on day one. We're not going to allow people to uh, buy their way out of jail if they're dangerous, and we're not going to require people who are poor to languish behind bars because of their poverty. And do you see that as, as, as feasible? Absolutely. You know, it's a system that's worked just fine for people who are wealthy uh, for for decades. And so, uh, you know, I really believe what's good enough for the wealthy is good enough for the poor. And, and I do think there are some people who present uh, such a serious public safety risk that uh, we, we would and should seek uh, a detention order from a judge. But I think those are the exceptions. Uh, they're they're a, a really small uh, minority of the cases. And they're people who generally have a serious history of, of violence and have strong evidence against them in, in the pending case, uh, instead of what we see today, which is our jails crowded with people who are there simply because they're too poor uh, to buy their way out. Okay, final question um, is, uh, what, what's your honest assessment of your chances to win, and what do you need to do to get there? I think we're uh, exactly where we want to be to win, David. You know, we have all the momentum. I got into the race about six or eight months after my competitors, uh, and everybody said that there was no way we could close the gap, particularly in the face of, of the, uh, you know, of the um, serious endorsements that some of them had. But the reality is we've done uh, better in fundraising in our six months. Uh, we've gotten tons of endorsements from people across the country. We have by far the most volunteers. Um, and at the end of the day, we have the vision for what the criminal justice system should look like that is setting the tone for the debates and for the conversation. Every single one of my opponents has copied and mimicked some of my policy commitments. Every single one of them has shifted their uh, policy platform since I got in the race. And voters across the country and in San Francisco are demanding exactly the kind of change that I've been fighting for my entire career and I'm promising to deliver once elected district attorney. So I feel great about where we're at, the momentum we have, and what we need is uh, this movement to continue to build and grow. We need more people to take ownership of their city, their community, uh, and the relationship that they want to have with the law enforcement agencies that uh, are sworn to serve and protect them. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, David. Uh, happy to be here, and thanks for your work. Thanks. That was Chesa Bodine, who is running for district attorney in San Francisco. This has been the Davis Vanguard with our inaugural podcast. And once again, you can catch the latest news on the San Francisco courts as sfcourtwatch.org. And you can catch our main coverage of the Yolo County courts at vanguardcourtwatch.com.